We now have the privilege to come to the Word of God, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Today we're looking at verses 14 and 15. At least six months have passed since Jesus' baptism. Mark actually bypasses the next events that are listed in the Gospel of John, but are not listed in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and that is Jesus' cleansing of the temple and his journey through Samaria. He picks up after John had been taken into custody. Now, he's going to go into more detail in chapter 6, so he just mentions it and moves on. But it was after John the Baptist's arrest that Jesus began his public preaching and miracle working in Galilee. Prior to that, John was still baptizing in the Jordan. Jesus was ministering in Judea. So their two ministries actually overlapped. After John's arrest, Jesus returned to Galilee for an extensive ministry there. So Mark skips over the Judean ministry. He begins with the Galilean ministry, which will cover a period of about 19 months. And then he deals briefly in chapter 10 with the Perean ministry before moving on to the last week in Jerusalem. Listen to the two verses that we have, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after Jesus had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As we've already noted, these two verses mark the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. They highlight the priority of the gospel and give us the content of the message that Jesus preached. They're brief, but they are concise. And we saw that his, in his baptism, that was actually his inauguration. His temptation was his testing. And now we see his sovereignty and his power as he preaches. And he calls those who hear to repent. So Mark begins this short narrative, if you'll look at verse 14, with the arrest of John the Baptist. It says, now after John had been taken into custody. Only mentions that briefly. There's no explanation, no details. It is actually assuming that the reader is familiar with these events. Again, Mark doesn't go into any detail about John's arrest and imprisonment and eventually his death until chapter 6. I want you to notice the verb taken into custody. That literally means to be delivered up. And the word became a technical term meaning to deliver up as a prisoner, though it is translated betrayed in Mark 3.19 where Jesus had betrayed or been betrayed by Judas and therefore Judas delivered him up. It's interesting that in that phrase the use of the passive voice indicates that what was done was done in accordance to God's purpose. In other words, at the right time, and only at the right time, John was arrested, and Jesus' ministry becomes more public. Again, his first year of ministry was in Judea. This is what many call a time of obscurity. But not now. Now it's public. And so Mark now identifies what Jesus was doing in Galilee. Both Matthew and Luke give us the same information. But we do find one exception, and that exception is in Luke. Luke says that Jesus returned to Galilee, and here it is, in the power of the Spirit. He came in the power of the Spirit. If you remember in, in the temptation... That we looked at last week, he was led into the wilderness, how? By the Spirit. It says in verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. 
And now he comes out of that temptation. He comes out of that place of loneliness, that place of darkness. And now he is in Galilee. Luke tells us that the news about him is spread throughout the sounding district. And he began to teach in their synagogues. And he was praised by all. That's until they begin to listen to his message. See, it's not hard to attach yourself to Jesus for things that he does. That's what people have done all throughout the centuries, is attach themselves to Jesus because of his works. Back then it was because of his miracles. People came to him and flocked to him because he made food out of fish and bread. And he fed thousands of people with it. So naturally, that would draw attention. But when they started listening to his message, that's when things changed. But I want you to notice in verse 14, his preaching. Mark again says, Jesus came into Galilee, and as he came into Galilee, he began to preach. And his message was the same as what he preached in Judea. Notice what it says. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he came preaching. That was his priority. That was his mission. That was his calling. That was the means by which God would announce the arrival of the king was through the preaching, first through the preaching of John the Baptist and now through the preaching of the Son of God. We saw that word preaching when we were looking up at verse 4, talking about John the Baptist preaching. It's the same word, caruso. The word means to proclaim. It means to herald. The word itself is showing here repetition because it occurs again. It's showing a close association with the message of John the Baptist because he had preached a message of repentance and Jesus is preaching that same message, which tells me that all preachers are to preach that message of repentance. We're not called to analyze the culture. We're not called to give a politically charged speech or to design new gimmicks for persuading an audience. Rather, preachers are called to proclaim the same message that Jesus himself preached, which was the good news of eternal salvation that comes from God. I told you uh, when we were looking at John the Baptist's preaching that Martin Lloyd-Jones defined preaching as logic on fire. Here's another definition that he gives for preaching. He says, preaching is the highest calling. It is the most noblest work, the most awesome privilege, and the greatest challenge that can be given to any man. It is the one activity that demands the entire man, the whole attention, the utmost effort, the highest skill, the greatest wisdom, the deepest spirituality, and the fullest preparation. It is the one occupation that brings together in the most amazing way all of the elements of man's personality and gifts and employs them all in the service of God and of his fellow men. But if only preachers could understand that today, instead of what they're trying to do is please the masses, please the crowds. And so therefore they want to draw people in and they want to have people join their church. So you have to water down the message. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. Water it down. People have had a hard time. They've had a hard week. And they certainly don't need you hollering at them on Sunday morning when they come in. They don't need to hear about how bad they are. They want to hear something positive. They want to hear something encouraging. They want to hear Caleb. I couldn't help that. That's their little slogan. Positive and encouraging. But beloved, sometimes you need to hear the other side. And so since preaching is the highest calling, we hear Jesus, the master 
teacher, the master preacher, preaching. Now, if you take your Bible and you look in the New Testament at the various places in which he preached, you find him preaching in Luke 4 in Nazareth. You find him in Capernaum. You find him in the synagogues in Galilee. You find him on the mountainside as he gave the Sermon on the Mount, one of the longest sermons, Matthew 5 to 7. You find him on the shore along the sea preaching. You find him in the temple preaching. You find him in Jerusalem preaching. Of course, that's not in any way an exhaustive list, but what it's showing to us the priority that he had to preach. And if any preacher wants to emulate his Lord, then do what his Lord did and say what his Lord said. You know, many times he was referred to as the preacher, or he was called the teacher. I was talking to someone the other day from the city, and I said, yeah, I I know this other person. And I said, I don't know if he knows my name, but he always called me preacher or reverend. I don't really like the term reverend. I don't care about the other terms, but that's how they would refer to me. I'd go down there for something, and, oh, there's the preacher or there's the reverend. Well, as long as you remember what I'm here for, you can call me what you want. But please hear what I have to say. The people who heard him, according to Matthew 7.29, said that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so here, as we said, we see his sovereignty in his preaching because he he taught as one having authority. Now, what does that mean, teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes? Well, the scribes were always quoting somebody. But Jesus didn't need to quote anybody. He just gave them the word of God. He quoted his father. So his father told him what to say. And what he told him to say was what he was proclaiming. Now I want you to notice here that Mark refers to what Jesus said first as it being the gospel of God. Some manuscripts actually have the gospel of the kingdom of God. But those two different phrases are found in almost an equal number of manuscripts. And so there's really no significant difference in the meaning Both are communicating the same thing. And both of them are basically saying Jesus preached the gospel of God, which was the gospel of the kingdom. You say, well, what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom can be seen in actually three ways. First, you could see it as the present reality. Jesus came to earth to establish the kingdom of God. He declared that it was already at hand. We'll say more about that in a minute. The kingdom was present. Why was the kingdom present? Because the king was present. Secondly, the meaning of the kingdom of God is future. Talking about a future hope that one day will be fully established on earth. An earthly kingdom. Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 gives an earthly millennial kingdom. Where Jesus will reign on earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. During that time, Satan will be bound. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed so that he can deceive the nations one more time. And then, of course, we see here not only it being a future hope, but we see it also as a present reality, this present spiritual reality. The kingdom of God is not a physical kingdom where you have boundaries. But it's a spiritual reality that is present in the hearts and the lives of every child of God. Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God is within you. And certainly that's not something that can be observed with the eyes. It's really a matter of the heart. So the kingdom of God would be the reign and the rule of God in the hearts and the lives of His people. So you have a present reality, you have a future hope, and you have a spiritual reality. And all of this is only experienced by followers of Jesus, those who belong to Him. And so the gospel here, 
This is the gospel of God. It's the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, the phrase the gospel of God is how the other writers referred to it. You had both Paul and Peter using that same terminology. Over in Romans 1, in verse 1, Paul said that he was set apart for the gospel of God. He later said in chapter 15, when he had wrote very boldly to them on some part, says to remind them again. He says, He did this because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said in 2 Corinthians eleven seven in his defense of his apostleship, he says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he told them in 1 Thessalonians 2.2 that after he had already suffered and been mistreated at Philippi, as they already knew, he had the boldness in God to speak to them the gospel of God in the midst of persecution. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Because of having so fond of an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very souls. Peter used the term also, 1 Peter 4.17, when he said that time for judgment to begin with the house of God, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the gospel that Jesus preached, it was from God, and it was about Him. It was a royal pronouncement about the arrival of the king and his kingdom. And he gave conditions for entering his kingdom. And the father told him exactly what to say, because this gospel is about Jesus. That's why we hear in John 12, in verse 49, Jesus said, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. In other words, he was in total dependence upon the Father. Everything he said was, again, what the Father told him. But we need to, as we look at this, we need to pay close attention to the message. The message actually picks up in verse 15. And notice what he says again. The time is fulfilled... And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very simple, concise, pointed message. This message tells us what the will of God is for your life and for my life. It tells me what I need to do in order to possess the kingdom of God. And so... Let's begin to look at that. This message is actually fourfold. First, he says, the time is fulfilled. This shows us the exact timing for God. You heard Jesus say many times, this is not my time. My time has not yet come. Now it has come. And that's very significant because the people had waited a long time for the Messiah to appear. And now the wait is over. And we hear Paul even say in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law. Everything was according to God's sovereign timetable. And it's still true today. We look around and we see what's going on in our world and we think, is God going to intervene? And He is and does and will always intervene. And anything going on in the world is not a surprise to him. In fact, that I would submit to you that the leadership that we have going on in the world is the leadership we have because God placed them there. According to Romans 13, that they're ministers of God. Even though that they may be wicked rulers, they're still placed there by God. Someone said one time that when God judges a nation, He gives a nation wicked rulers. And I'll tell you right now, America does need to be judged. When you look at the many, many things that America has latched onto, and the sad thing about that, the church has done the same thing. 
instead of coming out and being a conscience to the world and speaking out against the various sins or the many sins that we see being promoted today, they have just embraced it. They've allowed it in the church. And the church has become corrupted and polluted by that, and it's not a holy institution any longer. It's not a place that where the banner is God's holiness. Because the church has embraced sin. And so when the Messiah came, their wait was over. He had appeared. Though they had misconceptions about him, misunderstandings about prophecy, they could never see that he was to suffer. They just thought he was going to come in, overthrow the Roman government, set up his kingdom, and there they were. Can you imagine the 400 years of silence of not having a prophet speak? And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he is preaching. And they had to even send a delegation to to him from the Pharisees to find out if he is the Messiah. Remember that in John chapter 1? And of course, John quickly said he is not the Messiah. And they said, well, are you Elijah? And he said, no. Quickly, he removed himself from any of those thoughts. And they said, well, who are you? We must give an answer to him who have sent us. And he says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. That sent them scratching their heads. The kingdom is right here in front of you. You can't get any more of the kingdom now in the time of Jesus appearing than you could ever get. Because you have the King offering the kingdom. And as I said, everything leading up to that was part of the process to reveal His kingship. So Jesus said, not only is the time fulfilled, but the kingdom of God is at hand. That phrase occurs 14 times in Mark. You have the kingdom of God, and sometimes you have the phrase the kingdom of heaven. Both of them mean the same thing. And that became the central teaching of of Christ. And the idea that the kingdom of God is at hand, it means it's right here, it's present, it's right in front of you. And again, here's the king. The people always looked to the Old Testament for the Messiah. The Old Testament taught the promise that the Messiah would come. Let me give you one of those places, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord... He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. That's just one of the, the many places, but the Old Testament did speak of the reign of God on earth. And the Jews looked forward to that. Exodus fifteen eighteen talks about the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And Psalm twenty nine ten says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, he sits as king forever. Or Isaiah forty three fifteen, I am the Lord your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. 
So the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right before you because the king is right before you. And the only way into that kingdom is by what he says next. And what does he say next? He says you must repent and believe in the king and his message of the kingdom. Now, up to this point, you don't have any imperatives, but you do now. There is an imperative here, which is a command to repent, and there is an imperative or a command to believe. You know, I, I find at different times when I talk to people about the gospel, uh, they will tell me things like this, that when it's time for me to come, or when I'm ready to come to God... Um, I'm going to come on my terms. Of which I reply, then you're not coming. Because you can't come on your terms. The king has set out the terms. If you want to be a part of his kingdom, you have to come his way. You have to do what he said. That's why many times it talks about those who are going to experience the judgment of God are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't obey it. So therefore they don't come. So what are we to obey? Well, we are to obey this imperative that he gives here in verse 15. First, to repent. We are to repent. That's the word metanoia. It's used in the present tense, which tells me that the ongoing pattern of your life is repentance. It's not that you just repent one time in coming to Christ. No, it becomes an, an overall pattern for your life. Because guess what? Even though you repent, and even though that you are now a new creation in Christ, you still have the flesh that you have to deal with, and enhoused in that flesh is your sin. Yes, you're fit for heaven. You're ready for the kingdom of God. You're ready to be brought into the very presence of God. All your sins have been washed away. You have been forgiven totally of every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. But you have to repent. And this has to be the ongoing pattern of your life. And I would just say this, as a child of God, it will be. It will be an ongoing pattern. That's not to say that you'll never have trouble with your sin. That's not to ever say that you'll never stumble. That's not to say that you'll never hide your sin. David did that, did he not? Psalm 32 highlights to us what happened when he did that. He said his, his bones were waxing old through his silence. He had guilt. And the only thing that I know that can relieve your guilt is confession of that sin. And I'm not saying confess it to me or confess it to somebody else. Confess it to God. That's where you need to go. I can't forgive anything. Neither can anybody else in here. Only God can forgive sin. So you go to Him. And the Bible tells us that when we come to Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, He's our advocate with the Father. He's our lawyer in defense. So when you sin, you come to Him. In fact, that verse, 1 John 2, 2, begins this way, And if anyone sins. So supposing that you're going to have a struggle there. But the word repent is a compound word made up of two parts. It comes from meta. Meta means change or to be beyond. And noeo, which means to perceive, to think. To think change. It's really the radical idea of a change of mind or a complete turning away from one's previous thoughts or way of life. And it's implying not only a change of mind, but also a change of heart, therefore a change of behavior. How can you know that someone truly is a child of God? Look at their behavior. Look at their life. Does their life match their profession of Christ? Or do you have to look long and hard just to see if Christ is present in their life? Because they make no reference to Him. See, I have a hard time believing somebody is saved that has nothing to do with God. 
And most people that you talk to, and you talk to them as well as I do, and everybody's talking about going to heaven. Except for those who don't believe that there is a heaven, those who don't believe that there is a God. And they believe that they just go out of existence. And that would be somewhat comforting because really the gospel confronts our immorality, does it not? And the only reason why people don't want to embrace the gospel and come to Christ is because they love their sin. It says in John 3 that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's why they don't want to come to the light because coming to the light, God exposes your deeds. He exposes your sin. That's not comfortable. Again, this term is very radical. Change of mind, change of heart, change of behavior. And, and to be even more specific than that, it's a turning away from sin. And it's a turning towards God. So you turn from your sin and you turn to God. You know, when I was in the world before I became a believer, there were some things that didn't agree with me that I was doing, like smoking uh, I couldn't get that chimney lit very well on my head to blow all that smoke out, and I'm just teasing. No, it just never sat well with me, so I quit. Some people can't quit certain things because they need really divine help. Now, I will admit to you, I couldn't quit anything else. I couldn't quit drugs, couldn't quit drinking, couldn't quit any of that until God saved me. But I was willing to. I was willing to lay that down. But... I, I never did turn to God in the beginning parts of that. I would turn from like smoking, and that was just it. I didn't turn to anyone. In fact, what I found many times that if I turned from something that I was doing that was wicked and sinful, I ended up turning to something else that was equally wicked and sinful. Listen, it's only the gospel that liberates you, it's only the gospel that breaks the chains. It takes the chains off. That is the only place you're going to really find true freedom is in the message of the King. He comes to deliberate you from your sin. But you're so chained and you're so attached uh, to your sin uh, that you can't break ties with it. And that's why... Repentance is really described in four ways. Let me give you the four ways it's described. First of all, it's described as a turning from sin. Acts 3.19 says, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So you've got to repent and turn. And when you turn, you're turning away from your sin, so it will be wiped away and Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And you see right there, you're turning from sin, and you're turning to a compassionate God who is ready to forgive you. I think the best definition, though, occurs in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Listen, your one main motive to come to Christ is to flee God's wrath. And you know what? That's something, again, we don't hear preachers talking about. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about wrath and judgment. They don't talk about hell. Hell is spoken about more in the Bible than heaven is. You know why that is? Because everybody's going to hell unless God saves them. Right? We have Adam's sin. Even that little baby, that precious little baby that was born to Tiffany and Harrison is a sinner. And it won't be long that she will begin to show her nature. Even Samuel, with all of his disabilities, is a sinner. And sometimes he shows it. Sure he does. Sometimes he can have some fits. 
something he doesn't want to do and he gets frustrated and he can't really communicate it to you, you know what he does? He, he begins to, and he bites his finger while he's doing it. And it's his fit of rage. It's rage. What it is. He's having a fit. And so every new therapist we ever meet with, we say sometimes he's going to do this. If he's done and he doesn't want to do what you're doing and you're making him do it, he may do this. When we spent a week in Orlando going through that intensive that we did for an entire week, I was surprised how well he did. He did so good. But when we got to the end of the week, he was done. And when we were getting ready to leave to come back up here to Jacksonville, he was so upset that we were putting him in his chair, he thought he was going back to therapy again. And so he put on a nice display of depravity. That's <laughs> what he did. Yeah, that's how I refer to kids sometimes, though they're, they're little depraved kids and they run around showing their depravity. They just don't know that they're depraved. That's why you, mom and dad, have to teach them what that's about. And you have to teach them how to overcome that. Repenting, turning from your sin, turning to God. So if you're here this morning and you have not turned from your sin and turned to God, do it right now. Don't wait until I finish talking or don't wait till we have the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. Turn now. But it doesn't just include that. It also includes the confession of sin. Listen to Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You've got to confess it and forsake it. You've got to acknowledge it before the Lord that what you have done was sin. It was wicked. And I told you last time that the word that's used in the New Testament to identify this is the Greek word homologeo, is translated admit or confess. And the word itself means to say the same thing. So what you're doing when you confess your sin, you're saying the same thing God says about it. You're agreeing with Him. This is sin. And that you need to turn from it. And you need to forsake it. And you need to confess this to Him. That's what you're doing. You're saying the same thing about it that he says. You're not hiding it. You're not denying it. This is why we should be preaching the law of God, the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments shows us that we are a sinner. You don't have to go into specific details of people's sins when you're talking to them with the gospel. Just share the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments will do it. And if they're going to be mad, they're going to have to be mad at God. Or maybe they'll be mad at you because you shared that. But ultimately, you didn't write it, but you were called to proclaim it. Right? And listen, please hear this this morning. The only way you're going to have a relationship with the king is for you to repent and come to the king. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. We hear verses like this. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or we hear something like Psalm 38.18, For I confess my iniquities and I am full of anxiety because of my sin. His anxiety was caused by his sin. What are your anxieties caused by? So it's a turning... And it's a confession of sin. It's also a change of behavior. At the baptism of Jesus, Matthew records that there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came to the baptism of John. And John immediately said, You brood of vipers, who's warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. You say that you're going to repent, then let's see the fruit. Because if you're turning from your sin and you're embracing the king wholeheartedly, that will be seen. You can't hide it. And so again, how do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, just like Colossians 3, 9, and 10. It says here, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In this case, if you truly have turned to God, you truly have turned from sin, it's going to show up in your daily activities. In this case, in Colossians 3, you're going to stop being a liar. Stop lying. You know, when I was a school teacher and also when I was a principal, and I saw it more as a principal, kids lied all the time just so they could get out of trouble. And sometimes I knew better. Sometimes I knew that they were lying and I could prove it. Sometimes I couldn't. So what do you do when you got two parties lying to you? You punish both of them. It's just that's the same thing Solomon did. You remember that situation with Solomon with the, the two women that came to him and one of the ladies had slept on her baby and it died and the other one was alive and the mother whose baby died, while the other mother was sleeping, she took her alive baby and laid it next to her and took the dead baby and laid it next to the other woman so that when they woke up in the morning, the woman thought she laid on her baby and the baby died, but it turned out that the woman had swapped them. And she kept denying, kept denying, and finally she, they brought it to the king, Solomon, and what did Solomon do? He said, bring me a sword. And he said, let's divide this baby in half so that each of the women will have a child. And the true mother immediately yelled out and said, let her have it just so that no harm comes to my baby. That's how it was revealed whose child the baby belonged to. People were amazed at that, that kind of wisdom. That was the beginning of Solomon's wisdom that they began to witness. But again, how do you manifest the fact that you have repented? Well, sin should not be your master any longer. Righteousness is your master now, Romans 6, right? Now you're committed to the righteousness of God, whereas before you weren't, whereas before you didn't know anything about God. You couldn't even respond to God in a positive way because you were dead to His environment. You were dead to Him. You were dead in trespasses and sins. So it's a, it's a turning from sin... It's a forsaking of sin. It's a change of behavior. And last, it's turning to God. And I mentioned this just a second ago, because when you're turning from sin, you've got to turn somewhere else, and you don't turn to another sin, like I was explaining that I did. No, you turn to God. You turn to Him. Joel 2.13 says, Now return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and He will have compassion on Him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon So you have to turn away from sin. That includes confessing your sin. It results in a change of behavior, but it's manifested in turning to God. That's the first command. The second command is the last part of verse 15. Believe in the gospel. Now I could have fun with this because the word believe has been so misunderstood. Many times the word belief is more like a mental assent to some facts, like an intellectual belief, intellectual knowledge, but it's much more than that. The word that's used here is the word pistuo in Greek. This, as I said, is also an imperative, but it's also used in the present tense, which tells us that this is ongoing. So you're not believing one time, you're believing all the time. It's an ongoing belief in Christ. It's an ongoing belief in the gospel, just like repentance is an ongoing turning from your sin and turning to Christ. The context here of the gospel, the word itself is describing the act of placing your trust and confidence in Christ who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It's not just an intellectual belief, but it's a personal commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey His Word. 
If you are not obeying his word, then I question whether you really are a Christian. As the word itself, pistuo, means to believe, to have faith in, to trust, and here's the definition I like, to be firmly persuaded. Do you remember in the reading of the book of Acts where Paul was before King Agrippa and King Agrippa said something to Paul and said that if he didn't know better that Paul was trying to persuade him to believe the gospel. You remember that? And yet Paul said he wished that all would become like him except for these chains, right? But that's what it is when we're sharing the gospel. And maybe you need to think about it this way. It is that you're trying to persuade them. You're trying to persuade them from error, from lies, and from Satan and that whole lifestyle that's right there. And you're trying to persuade them that Jesus is the only answer and He is the only way. He's the only one that you need to come to. He's the only one that can forgive you. In fact, He said that Himself, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. So He's the only way, very exclusive. Very pointed. But something else that this term gives us, and you don't always see it, but let me show it to you, and hopefully you'll see it now. And let me have you to go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And I want you to look at verses 23 through 25. As I said earlier, that there are people that attach themselves to Jesus for various reasons. And in this case, they were attaching themselves to him because of his signs that he was doing. It says that in verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. That's the same crowd that later on asked Jesus to give us a sign. He said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the Son of Man being in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's the only sign you're going to get. You're going to get the sign of my death and my resurrection. So they were attaching themselves. They were believing in His name, all because of the signs. But notice verse 24. And by the way, verse 23, the word believe is pistuo. And verse 24 the word is pistuo, but it's been translated, at least in the New American Standard Bible, as entrust. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew why they were coming. He didn't commit himself to them because they didn't commit themselves to him. See the idea? The word pistuo means to commit. It's a commitment of your life. You sit here and you want all the benefits of God. You want all the benefits of a future heaven, but you don't want to serve Him now. You don't want to name the name of Christ now. You don't want to experience any kind of trouble or persecution in your life because you're naming the name in a godless world. Well, guess what? He's not naming you either. You're only attached to Him by your words. You're not attached to Him by your life. Because it's much more than that. You have a mental assent. You haven't abandoned anything. But I will say this, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you want to be a Christian, you have to abandon everything to follow Him. Everything. Or maybe I should phrase it this way. You need to be willing to ab abandon everything. Whatever He tells you to abandon, you've got to be willing to do it. It's like that old man... that was living his life of Christ in front of his workers. And one day he's down there where his workers are, and one of the workers said, you know, you really want to identify with us here. You need to, you need to go home, put on your white suit, come back and get down here in this hole with us and help us dig this hole. And... Uh, he wasn't willing to do that. But he was more willing to have what the other one had. 
See, see, the point is, is if you want what God is giving, then you've got to come the way God is saying. I don't know if that's good grammar, but I think you get it. They did not commit themselves to them, so he didn't commit them, himself to them. And if you go over to chapter 3, and you have that verse that just about everyone has memorized as a child, John three sixteen. let me read it back with the word pistuo in it, because that's the word believe in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever commits to him their life will not perish that have everlasting life. See, when you read it without the understanding of what the word pistuo means, translated believe, you're left there, well, I believe some things about Jesus. I have the right thoughts about Jesus. I, I know some facts about Jesus. He was a good man. He lived. Some people believe that he's God. And yeah, I believe that he's God, but that's it. Doesn't change your life. Doesn't transform your life. Doesn't do, do anything for you. So again, it's the word commit. And by the way, that word is used 245 times in the New Testament. Why in the world can we not translate it commit? But that's a conversation for another time. See, it's only through repentance from your sinfulness and belief in the gospel that you can enter the kingdom. If you're not willing to turn from your sin... You're not willing to believe by committing yourself to Christ, then you're not going to be saved. And you can't be saved. So what about you this morning? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you made that commitment to Jesus? And beloved, everybody thinks that they have time. We always hear that. Well, you know, there's other things I want to do in my life right now. You know, I'll have time for that later. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed. Well, you might be unconscious when you're on your deathbed and you won't be able to do anything. You ever thought about that? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? I remember talking to someone on their deathbed and had another lady there with me trying to talk to him and I was just kept trying to pour the gospel to him, trying to get him to confess Christ and he wouldn't. She thought, he did, and I said, no, he didn't. He just rejected Christ very boldly, very clearly. I mean, I heard it very clearly. It was the saddest day of my life hearing that because he died shortly after that. And if he never repented, he's in hell right now. You know, doesn't that bother you? Doesn't that scare you? This is so sad that so many churches have stopped preaching this today. Which tells me that all those people that have attached themselves, they're not converts of Christ, they're converts of that pastor, they're converts of that church. And beloved, let me just say this too. Uh, you know, how we live is a testimony to others. It's also a testimony of the church that you attend. I read yesterday about a former pastor who was a member at a church out here. He was arrested on child pornography. I don't know if y'all saw that in the paper yesterday. But think of all the people that he led astray by his sinfulness. And think about all the people who he led astray after they heard what he did. Think about the rage. I would be enraged too. You touch my kids like that. It would be very difficult. Very. And sometimes we don't know the, the presence of grace until we're in those situations, right? It's like Paul. But if you want to be a follower of Christ, you've got to come His way. You've got to do what he says. And if he says repent, you've got to repent. If he says confess, you've got to confess. If he says believe, you've got to believe. Here's how he says it in Luke 9, 23 and 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself 
Take up his cross daily and follow me. Starts first with self-denial. You're not going to take up any cross if you can't deny yourself. And you're certainly going to do that every day. Because the cross is the instrument of death. That cross is the instrument by which you die. So every day you need to die to your desires, to your will, your plan. And every day you need to acknowledge God's will and God's plan. And you need to follow Him. He doesn't say, make a decision for me. He doesn't even say, pray this specific prayer. No, Romans 10 says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. It leaves the prayer to you. But you have to call upon Him. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross daily. You have to lose your life. You have to follow Him. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't enter into the kingdom. You can't enter into any saving relationship with the King. And you need to realize, hopefully realize, that the number one problem with holding you from the Savior is your sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. And the wages of sin is death. But there is a gift that Jesus offers. It's called eternal life. But it's only available to those who repent and believe. And so upon seeing that problem, you turn to Christ. You turn to the gospel. You believe Christ. You confess Him as Lord. You make that commitment. And just as I said earlier about the word homilegeo, talking about saying the same thing, you know, the same word is used when it talks about confessing Jesus as Lord. It says in Romans 10, 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So, beloved, you have to say the same thing that God says about His Son, that He is Lord. So, beloved, as you're talking to people about the gospel, you're giving them the gospel of the kingdom. Take the time to explain to Him who the King is. We, we tend to go out there and we tend to think everybody knows who Jesus is. Not today. There's a generation that's coming up that does not know God. Not at all. The parents have failed on that note. And many of them failed because they don't know God. So repent. Return. So your sins will be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 3.19 Do what the Philippian jailer did in his whole household. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and they were saved. And listen, when He saves you, what does He do? He makes you a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How's that show up in your life. It shows up like this, Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's my prayer for you this morning. That first you would evaluate yourself to see whether you be in the faith. And if you're not, you need to turn to Christ. And you need to do it now. Because you think, you erroneously think that you have time. Beloved, the only time you have is the time right now that you're hearing it. And you need to thank the Lord God that He has granted you enough grace to hear the gospel of His Son. And so I, I call you to repent and come to Christ.
Father, we thank you for this morning and the privilege that we've had to come to your word and the opportunity that we've had to embrace it this morning. We pray now as we have an opportunity to share in the Lord's table that, Father, that we would not, first of all, take this in an unworthy manner, but no, Lord, that we would examine ourselves first. And so, Lord, that we bring glory and honor to you through participation in these elements.